Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you again this morning to, to give praise and glory to our Savior. If, you had, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. We continue now in our service of worship now by hearing from God's Word preached. So if you would, I invite you to join me in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, where this morning we are going to be studying the first 13 verses of this chapter. Matthew 17, 1 through 13, the glory of Jesus. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the pew, you'll find that still on page 822. Matthew 17, 1 through 13, the glory of Jesus. When I was in high school, my dad took my younger brother and I uh, on a trip to see Yosemite. If you haven't been, uh, it is even more beautiful than they say it is. Our trip was filled with incredible sights, large herds of wild buffalo, nimble coyotes, proud mountain goats, even playful bears. We witnessed the, the strength and, and stench of old faithful. But my, my clearest memory from that trip is of a vista, a, a panoramic view from the peak of a mountain we climbed, a mountain I don't even remember the name of. You, you can picture in your mind's eye, as far as the eye can see from the top of that mountain, pristine sights of mountains and meadows. And on one side, we could see rain clouds as if, as if they were being torn down from the sky as we watched a, a storm roll across a valley. And on the other side, under blue skies, we watched a forest fire advance a distant, on a distant ridge. The fire suddenly consuming trees in bright light and then fading I can, I can still picture the sight. It's one of the most stunning scenes I have ever seen. The, the elevation of a mountaintop provides an unparalleled vista, an opportunity to see from one spot all the splendor of natural beauty. Well, as beautiful and memorable as that sight was, the, the best this natural world has yet to offer me, it is nothing compared to what Peter, James, and John witnessed on another unnamed mountain. What they saw was not the beauty of nature, but the spotless beauty of the supernatural, the glory of Christ himself. Our passage this morning, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1-13, the glory of Jesus but before we read, please pray with me that God would give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Please pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we have sung, so now we pray, show us Christ. Father, we pray that we would see Him as He is, not as we imagine Him to be, not as the world tells us He is, but as He really is in His glory. Lord, we pray this with the confidence that, that when we see him, we shall be like him. Lord, we pray that we would hope in him and thus purify ourselves as he is pure. Lord, this morning you would draw our hearts to listen to him. And in listening, that we would have courage to trust and follow him. 
It's in Christ's glorious name that we pray all this. Amen. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Well, if you saints want one short phrase that might summarize our text, it could be this. A glimpse of Christ's concealed glory gives us courage for our coming cross. A glimpse of Christ's concealed glory gives us courage for our coming cross. In context, in, in chapter 16, immediately before this, Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is what they have been anticipating since the fall of man. And, and Jesus affirms that this confession is not mere human speculation, but indeed divine revelation. So it is on people making that confession that Jesus promises he will build his church but immediately following that confession, Jesus clarifies for his disciples what it means for him to be the Messiah. Not immediate triumph and glory, but rejection, persecution, even death. And he calls his disciples, any who would follow him to the same path, to self-denying, cross-carrying. The cost, though he assures us, is worth it. There is another life. Our souls have infinite value. And glory is coming. Suffering first, then glory. And now in our passage today, God intentionally lifts the veil of Jesus' concealed glory to give His discouraged and confused disciples some confidence. As we say, a glimpse of Christ's concealed glory gives us courage for our coming cross. We're going to study this passage this morning with eight observations that I hope will build our courage too as we face suffering. Eight observations 
I'll share them, though, as we go. So our first, in verse 1, our first observation, the transfiguration is for the disciples. Number one, the transfiguration is for the disciples. We want to start here because it's where our passage starts, but it also helps us understand the entire passage. Why is this story here? Why does Jesus do this? He didn't have to. You know, Jesus has been on mountains before. He was content to go up alone. Matthew 14, 23, you might remember. He went up on the mountain by himself, Matthew reports, to pray. Luke's account of this very scene includes the fact that Jesus is also going up on this mountain to pray. So why, this time, bring Peter, James, and John? I think it's so clear that he is doing this on purpose. It is for the disciples. Verse 1 says that we're still within a week of this revelatory but hard teaching of his rejection and death and of his disciples following him in that. So here... After six days, Jesus took with him and led them up. You know, the disciples, it is clear, didn't volunteer, asking him, hey, can we join you this time up the mountain? He didn't post a a sign-up sheet that morning for the optional excursion to the lovely mountaintop retreat. No, it says Jesus takes and leads. Well, the next question might be why these three Well, these three were the first of the four called by Jesus. When Matthew lists the 12 disciples, these are listed first, along with Peter's brother, Andrew. Later, when Jesus will invite some disciples to go with him to pray in the garden, it is these same three. They clearly had a privileged access to Jesus, but their access was not a privilege for their own enjoyment. Jesus chose them to, through them, one day reveal it to all. But this is for them. I don't know if you notice as we read, the whole passage focuses on the experience of the disciples. The word them shows up seven times. He says, for example, that he was transfigured before them. The voice from heaven addresses them. So Jesus here clearly wants to show them something and for them to remember it for future reference after his resurrection. Once we've considered the whole passage, we'll return to this thought and and consider what Jesus' goal, why he did this. But note just for now that this was for them. This scene is for them. And immediately we too should take courage. Jesus himself takes courage and leads his disciples here in verse 1. The cost of following Jesus is high. Self-denial, cross-carrying, and the reward, for the most part, is still future. But Jesus doesn't just send us off on our own. He takes and leads his disciples. He is with us. In fact, his promise in Matthew 28.20 is, I am with you. Always to the end of the age, he says. He has purpose, we notice, to in where he leads. Though we don't follow Jesus in the the very real way that these three did, 
He still leads us and has a purpose in where he leads us. God, we might say, leads us by his providence. He has a clear and definite purpose in his sovereign direction of all things. Our church's confession of faith puts it this way. We believe that God, from eternity, ordains all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Saint, what we confess there is that he is leading you too. He has purpose in where he takes and leads you and us as a church. He has ordained it to pass, directing and governing all creatures and all events with purpose for you. You know, you might not know, as the disciples did, where you're going when you start up on the mountain. Why? Nor always when you come back down. But we know for certain that Jesus has purpose for you. Well, for these three, though, Jesus' purpose quickly becomes clear. The transfiguration is for them, but it is about Jesus. So our second observation in verse 2 Jesus is glorious. Number two, Jesus is glorious. This verse is the high point of the passage. It's simple in its understatement, but stunning in its significance. Again, verse two reads, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That word transfigured means to be transformed or to change appearance. As he was praying, Luke tells us, the appearance of his face was altered. When, when we think of changing appearance, we might think of normally as adding something, right? We might say that, that a woman is transfigured, the appearance of her face altered, by the addition of foundation, of mascara, lipstick. That is not what is happening to Jesus here. When it says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, his clothing becoming white as light, it is not putting something onto Jesus that wasn't there before, like makeup. It is revealing something that was previously hidden. It is a glimpse of Christ's concealed glory. When Peter one of the three that came up the mountain later reflects on this scene. He writes in 2 Peter 1.16, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, another one of the witnesses, in John 1.14, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Notice in both of those references, it is his glory. Majesty, His glory. What they are seeing is His. They are seeing Him as He really is. The Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, described it this way. The corner of the veil was lifted up to show them their master's true dignity. They are seeing Jesus as He truly is. These words, though, are unusual. Majesty, glory. What does glory look like? 
We might describe maybe an Olympic athlete as beaming with glory as they stand on the podium. But they're not literally glowing. When we talk about God, glory is the manifestation of His holiness. It is the making visible of His uniqueness, His greatness, His Godness. There is nothing at all in all of creation like God. He is in a category that is all to Himself. He is set apart. He is, in other words, holy. And when that holiness, when that godness, that uniqueness is displayed, the Bible calls it glory. Remember what we read earlier in our service about when Moses met with God on the mountain, face to face. When he left, his face shone. It did literally glow. Is that what is happening to Jesus? He's met with God in prayer, so his face now shines well, one commentator has a concise answer. Moses shone for a time with a reflection of the divine glory that he had seen. Jesus shone with his own heavenly glory. Moses' radiance was derivative, Jesus' essential. It is a part of his essence. Jesus, in fact, always had glory. Jesus is not only the Christ, but the Son of the living God, the the second person of the triune God. The dullness in this moment of his earthly condition was temporarily stripped away so that his true nature could be seen shining through. Near the end of his earthly life, when Jesus was expecting soon to return to his Father, Jesus prays to his Father about the glory he is returning to. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus had glory with the Father when there was only the triune God. Nothing had been created. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is giving his disciples a glimpse, a lifting of the corner of the veil of that glory. How wrong would it have been for me on that Yellowstone mountaintop to yawn and pull out my Game Boy in indifference? This was before smartphones. How terrible would it be for us to glance at our watches, eager to move on, when God's word holds out to us Christ's glory? I feel very much that my words will fail to accurately convey what these disciples saw in Christ. It is today unseen, or or better, seen only by faith. Seen not with the retina, but with the heart, enlightened. Is that light, saint, this morning shining in your heart? Do you see this morning the incomparable beauty, the godness of Christ? There is none like him. 
So one of the ways we see his incomparable glory is by proving there is none like him, by comparing his glory to others, other great figures, or even the Bible itself, and see how he stacks up. And that's where our scene proceeds. Our third observation, number three, Jesus is superior to the law and prophets. You want to compare him? Compare him to Moses and Elijah. Our third observation in verses 3 and 4, Jesus is superior to the law and prophets. We see here in verse 3, Jesus is joined by two of the major figures of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Verse 3, suddenly there appeared to the disciples, also on the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah. And they begin talking with Jesus. Mark and Luke make clear that Peter isn't sure what to do. It's like being in the presence of celebrity. What do I say? But he is certainly honored to be in their presence. He suggests here building tents, implying that he'd love this experience to last longer. To be clear, these men are ancient history, not only to us, but to the disciples too. Moses lived 1,400 years before the time of Christ, and Elijah 900 years. This is, by the way, evidence of what Jesus taught us last week, that, that people have souls that exist forever. Somehow they can recognize that these are the souls of Elijah and Moses appearing to discuss things with Jesus. But, but why these two? Why do these two show up? Does D- Jesus need some outside counsel about what to do next in his ministry? I wish we had an exact record of what they said All we know is from Luke, who says they talked about Jesus' coming departure, or more literally, exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They apparently knew of Jesus' plan and its near fulfillment, but the disciples didn't need to know what they had to say. We don't either. What we need to see is that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah, and the law and the prophets that they represent. Moses, we know, was used by God to lead his people in the first exodus. He is the author of the first five books of the Bible, known as the law. Elijah, who lived long after Moses, was a great prophet, announcing God's word to God's people. He is known for opposing false prophets, the prophets of Baal, and performing, performing great miracles. Frankly, the the two of them are some of the greatest that Israel could ever produce. And yet, they could not save God's people. Moses failed to enter the promised land where he meant to go the whole time. Elijah failed to get rid of false worship in Israel. But these two figures also represent so much more. Moses is synonymous with the law and Elijah the prophets. And law and prophets was a a way to summarize all of the Old Testament. Jesus himself does this in places like Matthew 5.17, where he teaches, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So why? Why is it that Moses and Elijah that appear to the disciples? It's because they witness to Jesus. 
He is the one all of the law and prophets point to. Jesus has come to fulfill them. Jesus' glory, his uniqueness on display is greater as the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He is what they predicted, pointed to, anticipated, were waiting for. This observation that Jesus is greater than the law and prophets and the next three are all linked together. We, we only split them to draw careful attention to them. They're like links in a chain, chain, distinct but inseparable. So the next link, our fourth observation is in verse 5. Jesus is God's beloved son. Number five, sorry, four, in verse five. Number four, in verse five, Jesus is God's beloved son. Our scene here in this verse is overshadowed by a bright cloud. Just like Jesus is shining as a sun, the lights of this bright cloud indicates God's presence. You might remember when God came into the temple to dwell there, it was in a bright cloud. Or this, this scene invites us to compare it to another mount where another cloud descended when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai. It was covered again by a cloud. And there too, a, a voice speaks from the cloud. There too, the, the people were afraid of what they heard. But now, instead of speaking many words that reveal God's character, the voice points to one word, the word made flesh. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you want to know what a well-pleasing life looks like to God? The law is a good place to look. The son is a better place to look. But God isn't just pleased with the Son because of His obedience. He is pleased because He is His Son. The glory of Christ, His greatness on display, is seen in the pleasure of the Father. This is what we sang of earlier from Father, how sweet. Listen to these lyrics. Father, how sweet must be the pleasure you find in your eternal Son. For long before you made the heavens, both you and He rejoiced as one. And long before you formed the angels, before you made the day and night, Jesus exulted in your presence, and He was all of your delight. How glorious is the Christ? He is all the delight of our Heavenly Father. Long before Jesus took on flesh and humbled Himself in obedience to the Father, He and the Father rejoiced together as one. And there is an immediate application of this. In all of its implications, God makes one absolutely clear and another link in our chain, this, our fifth observation, listen to Jesus. Number five, listen to Jesus. There in the last phrase of verse five. The Heavenly Father had once before announced that Jesus was his beloved son. 
back in Matthew 3 at his baptism. But here he adds more to that announcement. It's for the, the benefit of the discouraged disciples. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah, God's spokesmen in ages past, fade from view. The exclusive focus is now on Jesus. Because he is God's son, therefore listen to him. Moses and Elijah were faithful as servants to testify to the things that were to come. But Jesus is faithful as a son. This is, in fact, what Moses himself predicted. You can go back and read Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and following. He expects a, a new prophet, who, one who has God's words in his mouth. And Moses tells us there, too, to listen to him. Here is the incomparable glory of Christ, spoken by Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. His Son, whom He appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Why do we listen to him so far greater than Moses and Elijah? He is his son. He is the heir of all things. He is creator of the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He even upholds Moses and Elijah by the word of his power. We have great reason to listen with utmost care to his word. His word, for example, that we need to deny ourselves and pick up our cross if we want to follow him. To listen with utmost care to his word here, to rise and have no fear. Listen to him, God the Father says. This is a blank check from God himself that we are to listen to whatever Jesus says. If he says it, we are obligated and privileged to hear. So how's your listening, brother, sister? Are you giving yourself to listening with utmost care, even now? How has your time been reading God's Word? You should read, but more than that, you get to read. God has spoken to us by His Son, so I invite you to come to his word to hear Christ, to take his yoke and learn from him and find rest there for your souls. I'd encourage you, if reading God's word has not been restful for you lately, pray. Ask God to help you behold the glory of Christ. Don't read the Bible to finish tasks, to conquer ideas, but to see Jesus. And what we see even in this passage is that Jesus is delighted to come to you. That's the next link in our chain in our sixth observation of this mountaintop vista. Jesus is our mediator. Number six, Jesus is our mediator. 
This is in verses 6 through 8. The voice of God heard by the disciples here unmediated leads to terror in those who hear it. At Mount Sinai, the, the people begged for Moses to go up to listen on their behalf. So here too, the disciples fall on their face in fear. Let me reread these three verses for us. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It is appropriate for sinners to be in terror when confronted with God's presence. You might recall the prophet Isaiah's, Woe is me! when he saw the Lord sitting on his throne. To quote the recording artist Shai Lin, Fear this mighty king, his appearance frightening. The sound of his voice is the fiercest lightning. But Jesus, the great high priest, draws near in their fear. He comes forward to comfort, to relieve their fear. He comes close enough to, to touch them and invites them to stand. Jesus is the one who steps in between God and his holiness and man in his sin and fear. Jesus is the one who steps forward from God to relieve our fears. He is the mediator between God and man, the one who brings peace between two separated parties. Because Jesus is God, sharing the full divine glory with the Father and the Spirit, He can mediate God to man. And because He is fully man, He can mediate man to God. And this Jesus remains our mediator forever. His divine glory forever paired with our humanity. Brothers and sisters, there is only... One way to be in the presence of a holy God without fear. Jesus only. When we speak of God's holiness, it would be meaningless if it welcomed our sin into His presence. But you can be welcomed to stand in His presence without fear if you come in the name and cover of the mediator appointed by God. After looking at God in His holiness, our eyes must be lifted to Jesus as our mediator. That is the comfort that He offers to His disciples here and to us as well. To come, to stand, to have no fear, because He is our mediator. Well, after comforting these three disciples and us, our scene on the mountaintop is over. They descend back into the world now dimmed by His light, but there is more for the disciples to consider on their way back down. So our seventh observation in the last verses of our passage, 9 through 13, number seven, Jesus will be rejected. Number seven, Jesus will be rejected. Look again with me at verse nine. As they come down, this is the fifth and last time in the gospel that Jesus will tell his disciples to keep what they've seen a secret. You'll notice there's an expiration there listed for us in verse 9. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
You might consider, how did Matthew know about this when he was one of the nine left behind? Well, it's because they told him after the Son of Man was raised from the dead. On this side of the resurrection, there is no confusing what he came to do. But now, the disciples are still perplexed. So as they come down the mountain, they have a question for Jesus. Maybe because of his recent reappearance, the disciples are reminded that the scribes teach that Elijah must come. We looked at this recently. Some people back in Matthew 16 thought that Jesus was Elijah because Malachi had predicted that Elijah would return. Jesus here affirms this in verse 11. He comes to restore all things, he says. But their expectation, the nation's expectation of what that restoration would look like was off. You remember, some did come to John the Baptist in repentance. But worldwide restoration would have to wait. Because Elijah did come. They just missed it. They didn't recognize him and did to him whatever they pleased. If you want more teaching on this, you can go back to Matthew 11, where Jesus teaches very explicitly that John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. But particularly the point that Jesus wants to make in answer to their question, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Elijah came not to prevent the Christ's sufferings, but to foreshadow them. This is the new element of Jesus' ministry. Since Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ. Explicit teaching of how his ministry will end. His own suffering and death. His rejection and persecution at the hands of the authorities. Just as they failed to recognize John as Elijah to come, so also they will fail to recognize Jesus as the Christ. Just as they did to John whatever they pleased, putting him to death, they will do to Jesus whatever they please. Jesus will be rejected and suffer. Though he is glorious, superior to the law and prophets as God's beloved son, his ministry will come to another mountain. On this mountain, he will be taken to be led up this mountain by his enemies. He will be stripped of his garments and his face darkened by blood and bruises. On that mount, he will be joined by two other men, criminals, to be crucified with him. The mountain and the whole city will be clouded in darkness. Jesus will cry out to hear God's voice, but there will be silence, no answer. All of the apostles except John will be too terrified to draw near. And on that mountain, hanging from the cross between man and God, Jesus will stand in our place. He was our mediator. The wrath of God for our sins now falling on Him. He paid their full price, completely erasing our debt so that we can be forgiven of our sins and restored to right relationship with our glorious Heavenly Father. 
And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and the devil and ascended to his Father's right hand, now glorified in heaven with the glory that he had even before the world existed. Brothers and sisters, he has shown his disciples all this so they might be encouraged. Yes, suffering is coming, but see who the Christ is. Glory follows. So our eighth and final observation, saints, take courage. Number eight, take courage. I told you when we started, we would return to why. We have observed in this passage what Jesus did and taught on the Mount of Transfiguration, but why? Where we started, it was for his disciples, but what was his goal? I think his goal was to give them courage. Courage for them and us for our coming cross. Remember, when this story concludes, only these three know this. Until after the resurrection, the other nine don't know. The the crowds of other disciples will have to wait too. This message is for after the cross, after the resurrection, for their cross. The time of suffering will follow. They and we will suffer in the pattern of Christ our Savior. Chapter 17 verses 1 through 3 is something like a message in a bottle. A time capsule, if you will, for his crowds of disciples and his church. Once he is gone, once he is ascended into heaven, in order that we might take fresh courage. We return to the question, why these three? Why took he, I think he took three with him in order to establish it on two or three witnesses. So there is no question concerning their testimony. He is gone, yes, but Jesus is glorious. We saw his glory. We beheld his majesty. He is superior to the law and the prophets. He is God's beloved son. We are to listen to him. And though he was rejected, suffered, and died, glory followed. And so for us two saints, we too suffer now. Our sufferings in the pattern of Christ our Savior can be great and, and terrible. We today suffer the pains of disease, of loss, of, of disappointment. We suffer slander, rejection, imprisonment, and some even in the pattern of their Savior, death. If you aren't suffering now, it is coming. But the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 17 is to take a glimpse at His glory. Because you are His, and because He is yours, you will be with Him in glory. This is the testimony of Paul. Paul, who suffered more than any of the apostles, was so captivated by the glory of Jesus that he could say, in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glory so great that it far exceeds all of our suffering. There is no comparison. 
put all the sufferings you endure in your entire life on one side of the scale, it is a feather to the rock of the glory that we will inherit when our glory appears in heaven. In fact, Jesus promises us back in Matthew 13, 43, that our glory will be like his. When the Son of Man comes to gather us to his kingdom, he says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. If you are in Christ, you will one day shine as he did. The Mount of Transfiguration is then a preview of what is in store for you after suffering glory, shining like the sun. Not because we are righteous, but because He makes us righteous by faith. Our shining derivative is essential. In that day, we will forever be in an entire world where the Bible says there is no need of a sun because the glory of God gives it light. It will never again be concealed or hidden. Church, today we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together. We eat and drink to remember, yes, Jesus' body broken and His blood spilt. But as we do, we also look forward to our blessed hope. It is coming. The appearing of the glory. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So take a glimpse today, saints. The glory that you see today by faith gives us courage for the cross that we endure. Let's pray. Our Father of all glory, in you there is no shadow of variation due to change. You are the Father of all lights. You are light. You dwell in unapproachable light. But you have revealed your glory to us in the face of Jesus Christ. O Father, we pray that today that we would behold the glory of Christ by faith that we would see him as he is. And Lord, more than anything, we would anticipate the making visible of that glory on the day of his return, where from east to west he will appear as lightning or to bring in his glorious reign forever, where we will shine like the sun. Father, we pray that this hope would give us courage to endure with, with joy, even our cross, Lord, for the joy set before us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.